the antibody actually activates the NK cell, right. another killer cell from your immune system, and it kills the cancer cell. Essentially what we have to do is take, take the cancer sample from, from the myeloma patient, that would be from a bone marrow right. aspirate, kill all the red blood cells, kill everything that is just a, a stromal cell, a, a non-cancer cell, but keep the NK cells, mix them all back together with the proteins that came, you know, the serum, the proteins that came from the patient, the NKs, and the cancer cells, apply the antibody, daratumumab, and then measure the results on the cancer cells, Derek kills cancer cells in four hours. Yeah, <laughs> or he doesn't kill them. It, we see a mass response. We see them lose a few percentage of their, of their mass in four hours. We can use this weight measurement assay to measure how NK cells are killing cancer cells stimulated by antibodies. That very, is very cool. so nerdily cool. Seriously. <laughs> Today's episode is so exciting because it can actually revolutionize immediately the way that cancer is treated. With treatment failures, with how many lines people can see that will actually work or have a high chance of working versus the kind of 40, 50% if we're lucky on knowing if it works or not after two to three months to, to have to get it. All of those things can potentially be bypassed with a product that Travera has and we have the CEO, Cliff Reed, to tell us something they designed where you can actually look at your own cancer cell with your own immune system and blood and stuff and basically put it in different dishes and figure out if a treatment would work or not within 48 hours. Cliff, I'm so excited to have you here. Tell me what, what inspired the passion to kind of pursue? I see that you've been you know, CEO or executive chairman of several medical companies, right? Eloquent, Genos Research, a whole bunch of things. What inspired all that? Sanjay, good to be here first. Um, so I was the founding CEO of Complete Genomics, which is one of the leading uh, whole human genome sequencing companies. And when I started that company back in 05, we really thought we were gonna crack the code in cancer. You know, Gleevec had just hit, and Gleevec cures, you know. Right. And we set out to find a Gleevec for every cancer. And boy, did that not work. Uh, it turned out to be extraordinarily difficult to find cures for cancers using the genomic tools that we had. So I left Complete Genomics, you know, very happy with the, the, what we'd done in the sequencing world, which has improved medicine, but very unhappy with how it affected cancer. And subsequently met a professor at MIT, Professor Scott Manalis, who'd invented this revolutionary new measurement tool that offered for the first time the promise of being able to find effectively a biomarker, non-genomic, but a biomarker that would match every cancer patient to every cancer drug. And I said, this needs to get commercial. Wow. That's what we're working on. That is that is that is just so interesting, and you know, to be fair, I know that, you know you were saying, well, it was kind of a basically a buzzkill to have this you know genomic sequencing and figuring out things, and it didn't kind of unlock the code. But you know, in your defense and all of your pursuits, because you were really on the forefront of that. I mean, now we sequence and do genomic coding and everything. It still discloses, and I want everyone to know this that's listening. Doing these genomic sequencing and molecular tests you're trying to find the tools that enables a cancer to be able to grow or resist therapy or what it'll be sensitive to. That's all the coding. The thought was, when we figure that out, we just make a drug against it. And we realized it's far more complicated than that. But it does help because now we're still looking at, oh, does this make sense? Is this, is this the Achilles heel? Or if we attack this, it seems to be able to escape, but what if we attack the escape mechanism? So it's, it, that's the whole concept of precision therapy. But you decided and had an experience, I guess, to basically say, I, I, while I respect all that, Sanjay, I really just want to go a different strategy and see how I can help it because I'm, you know, I, I kind of burned. I touched the, I touched the oven and I, I don't want to touch it again. 
So you found a different angle, which is, okay, that's awesome that we're looking at different ways to be able to attack these things. But what about the duration of time it takes to even know if it's working once we found those drugs or those medications? And that is what brought you loosely to introduce it into the concept of, is there a way that I can tell a cancer cell is going to be sensitive to this treatment? And I would guess that it requires you to have the cancer cell, number one, is that true? And number two, I believe there's a physics angle to it, right? A little like basically saying that something must change that can change the qualities of cancer. And you looked at density. Well, we looked at, at mass. Actually. Mass, forgive me. Um, wait, Sim simply the weight of the cell, yeah. And so what was discovered uh, at, at MIT and uh, Dana-Farber was that if you take live cancer cells out of a patient, and we do have to have live cells, and you apply an effective cancer drug to those live cells, they change their weight by a tiny amount. I mean, really, really minuscule very quickly. And then four or five days later, the drug will actually kill the cell. But in a few hours, we can tell if the drug is gonna kill the cell four or five days later or not. And by using that really sensitive measurement that would happen so quickly, we could build a two-day turnaround cancer therapy guidance test that predicts which cancer drugs are going to work for which cancer patients. That's extraordinary. And for people to appreciate and understand that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is what I was able to find if I did some digging, was I, I see it like a house that like if there's a fire, right? And, and you're, and you're you know, basically need to get the smoke out, you can't breathe. There are changes that happen when you introduce a therapy that causes a little bit of calamity, a little bit of chaos, a little bit of like something's happening. And one of the mechanisms cancer cells and our normal cells, because remember cancer cells basically are like normal cells, but they have like unregulated growth. So they have the same mechanisms our normal cells have. Under that duress, under that stress, under that Titanic, just kind of like all of a sudden having water coming in and people need to do something. They have the efflux or basically are able, are trying to spit out things to be able to in the process, either repair or evacuate or something. And I believe that is that appreciable difference almost instantly. That's that fire, that's that, you know, cut in the Titanic ship, something's happening. And in trying to adapt to that, if like a boat is sinking, for example, and you got to throw stuff off board to make it lighter or whatever, it's probably a bad analogy. Uh, you see, you can appreciate that difference. That's, is that what's happening? Yes, I mean, that's a, a pretty good analogy. And that, that, but the difference is so, so tiny that it's really, really hard to measure. And, and think of it this way, if you, when you kill a cancer cell in a dish, it takes a few days to do that, and the cancer cell ends up weighing about half of what it did. Dead cells weigh about half of what live cells weigh, okay? Our measurement tool can make a measurement that shows when a cancer cell sheds one-tenth of one percent of its weight. It's an extraordinarily accurate measurement. So if it's gonna take it, you know, five days to kill the cell and cut its weight in half, and all we need to do is measure the weight change by like a percent or two, we can make that measurement in a few hours. And, and the, the beauty of this is that the, the problem with taking five days to kill a cancer cell is that they're dead sooner than that naturally. Cancer cells aren't like bacteria. They don't like living in a dish. They're parasites. They like living in our bodies. And when we take them out of our bodies, they die really quickly. So when you're trying to drug a cancer cell, you can never tell if it's dying because of the drug you're giving it or if it's just dying a natural death because it hates being outside the human body. But they're healthy and happy for maybe 24 hours. And our measurement detects whether that drug is gonna kill the cell five days from now while that cell is still healthy and happy, which makes it a very predictive test. So the question, I guess, 
would be that some may have is if I'm taking this active live cancer cell out of my body and sending it to a lab and stuff, you know, and I'm a statistician, so I can you know appreciate this answer. But how do you know that it's just not like you know desiccation? I'm sure that's not the right term, but desiccate of a plant and stuff means you know when it kind of gets limpy and you know you got to water it so the leaves get fuller. How do we know that the cell isn't you know desiccating or getting smaller just in the fact that it's not in the body? Or what is the control or you know sensitivity of making sure it's not just not just getting smaller? Yeah, and the the key word that you use there is control because you have to control for all those other factors like desiccation. So here's what we do. When you take a, a live cancer cells out of a patient, you take the sample and you split it in half. Oh, that makes sense. You apply the cancer drug to one half, no cancer drug to the other half, incubate for 24 hours, and then weigh each individual cell in each half of the sample and compare. Gotcha. Because if the drug does nothing, if the cells ignore the drug, then the weights of those two samples at the end of 24 hours, they're the same. It's gonna be like They've a placebo. It's like they got the placebo yeah, exactly. because there's a control you give group. A placebo drug, nothing changes, you know. But if you give it an effective cancer drug and that cancer drug starts that killing process, then the weights are going to be different by a tiny amount, but they'll be different and we can detect that in a single day. That's really so that makes sense. So you're having half of the sample, which is obviously you gotta appreciate if you tested five hours later, you're gonna see what the density change was across five thousand or twenty five hundred yeah. cells, and then you go into all, you know, into your little like subset containers and you see the ones that look resistant are pretty much the same weight as the ones that were in there, you know, got nothing. So it's like they got a placebo drug, even though they got a real one. And that's scary because if it's something that's indicated first line, second line, third line, we know they kind of fail some of them loosely 50, 60% of the time. It's scary because you're giving somebody that over and over and over again for four to six weeks to eight weeks before even knowing it's working. But here in, the, in these like tubes, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But here you're able to like appreciate that right out the gates, which is just extraordinary. One analogy that comes to mind, and I think you've mentioned this from the digging that I've done, is the same way that we just take infections out of the blood and say, we're going to culture it and see what it's sensitive to. Or if you do a urine study, you want to make sure the antibiotic works. You take the, you take the organism, you, you, know, you culture it, like you're culturing over 24 hours, you drop the different drugs. Hey, didn't seem to do anything. This one seemed to do something really well. Similar thing, right? It's almost identical. And the, the kinds of bacterial tests, they're called ASTs, uh, antimicrobial susceptibility tests, that's exactly what they do. Take live bacteria, put them in a dish, hit them with a dozen antibiotics, pick the one that works the best and give it to the patient. Turns out, according to the FDA, that works for about 98% of all patients, okay? Unlike the 50% or 40% kind of success rates that we have in cancer. But what we're setting out to do is reproduce that exactly in cancer. Because when you, when you go see a doctor and you have a bacterial infection, what they don't do is look up the results of a clinical trial and say, hmm, you seem to have an infection similar to these other people that had infections and they res responded to these drugs, that's what we're gonna give you. That's a very unsatisfying approach to treating a patient. I mean, what, what, in bacteria, they just say, we don't really care how other patients have responded, we're gonna test the drugs against you, your unique and unusual infection and pick the one that works for you. And in cancer, that's even more important because bacteria are kind of uniform. Cancers are wildly heterogeneous. And we know this in particular in late stage cancer patients, that you take a late stage patient and say, hey, because of this clinical trial over here, we're gonna give you this drug. The whole approach of a clinical trial is patients like you. Well, if there's a, you're a late stage heterogeneous cancer patients, there are no patients like you, you know, they're all different. And so 
That's why we don't see good success rates in giving drugs to late-stage cancer patients, because the clinical trial is not representative of the patient. If we can take the cells out of the patient, run 20 drugs by them, pick the one or two or three that are a drug combination that can address that patient's unique heterogeneous cancer, that's how we should be doing personalized medicine. For sure. I mean, I think to some degree, maybe both, because clinical trials, they definitely have a purpose, you know, when people are later or earlier, we kind of identify targets that are called tissue agnostic. And that's really what's exciting with NTRK, NTRK, right? So it's that, this is new concept of precision medicine where it's like, I don't really care where the cancer came from. Before, we would take a piece, we'd put it on a dish, it's called histopathology, and the pathologist would look at it and be like, okay, you know, this is like lung cancer, this is, you know, adeno. And we had these very loose generalizations. It's like being American, but a Louisiana person would say, dude, I'm still a lot different and behave differently than somebody in New York City or San Francisco, but we're all American. That's the way we were treating cancers forever, for decades. Now we're like, you know, you read how even social distancing with conversation. I, I say social distancing, everything's, everyone thinks COVID. But there is a polite and rude distance all over the world when you're talking to somebody where if you'll seem standoffish versus you'll seem like overly bearing and intimate. And like in the Eastern world and heavily populated places in India, like they're used to being closer. But in America and especially in the South, now Southerners even need even more distance because we have more distance between our homes and stuff. We expect, we're like, whoa. But whereas that's totally normal. And then if you're like further back, then it's like something that seems like rude. Like, oh, why aren't they close? Because I'm used to being something closer. Point of saying all that to say that each American is different. And then even in each state, everyone is different. Well, cancer is the same way. But tissue agnostic means we're looking at things that like the, there's a patch one mutation, for example, that I have a patient on uh, that I got through X-Cures. Like it's, she's a very young patient in her 30s. And we're kind of out of the chemo options and standard of care. And the couple I have left aren't great. The patch one seems to work on multiple people. So that's... Precision medicine in the sense of targets and regardless of tissue type. But you're talking about adds another layer to that, which some trials do look at, but yours is neat because people need to understand that the more we've learned about cancer in the last few years, what you are inherited with, not related to the cancer, has a bearing on how you respond to treatments because your cancer cell has a lot of the same tools and road mapping and, and you know, some people are fast sprinters, some are good marathon runners. It has those properties that are some of our inherited, BRCA mutations or not BRCA mutations or all this stuff. And that influence how your treatment works. So in one world, we're going with that, you know, and figuring out, okay, I need this genetic testing to see if this drug qualifies or not because it doesn't work. You're bypassing all of that stuff. You're saying like, I have your cell. Like, like, yeah, you could test BRCA, you could take the high cost of doing the gen genetic and germline testing to see how it'll influence. You could do the somatic testing. But at the end of the day, I have the mix of all of that for you specifically, and then I'm going to bring this drug in. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and the, your phrase, you have the mix of all of that, is right down our alley. Because, you know, what we don't know about how cancer works dwarfs what we do know about how cancer works. You know, when I was running Complete Genomics, I used to give this great talk, and my first slide was, cancer is a disease of the genome. And then uh, 10 years later, after we fought battles and won some and lost some, I would give that same talk, but I would take cancer as a disease of the genome, and I would cross genome out in big red letters, and I would write proteome under it. Because what we discovered is the genome is very important to cancer. What is cancer? It's a messed up genome. And, and, but, but that messed up genome expresses itself in proteins in manufacturing deformed proteins and, and proteins with incorrect amounts. And this is what causes cancer to have these wildly aberrant behaviors. And in theory, you should be able to predict all of that from the genome. In practice, that's too hard. 
So in practice, what we'll need to do is measure all of those proteins, you know? Well, there are 20,000 genes in a genome, and they're really easy to measure, and I help, help that and make that happen. There are like 300,000 proteins in the human body, and they're all in this dynamic signaling network that, that's the thing we call life. And man, oh man, is it complicated. And as great as our genome measurement tools are today, our protein measurement tools <clears throat> are rudimentary. So I look at that problem and say, until we have really great protein measurement tools, it's going to be really hard to fully understand what's going on inside of a cancer. I mean, we know the, that. the genes that we've identified, you know, they give, they give us good hints, and I, and I love the hints we have. And like I say, you know, CML and, and the Philadelphia chromosome and for Gleevec, man, that's more than a hint. That's a, you know, that, that's right. a, a, a complete cure. It's incredible. But, you know, we're not going to find that in most places. Cancer is just too complex. So what we do is we fall back to Mother Nature and we say, hey, let's let the cell be the integrator, be, be the arbitrator, bring all of the genomics and the proteomics and the metabolomics and the epigenomics and the metagenomics and bring it all together and tell us which drugs are going to work and which drugs aren't when you put it into the patient. And we think it's really going to take the protein measurement tool technologies, you know, decades. It may be the end of the century before we're going to see the kind of integrative work that a cell can do, you know, in a few hours. It's just amazing. And I, the way I see it is when you were on the really kind of sciencey, figure it out academic end, they, you know, with the genomics and finding all that stuff out, now you've really gone to the clinical end, which is like, all this is great and well, which it is. It's very good and very important to know those things because we don't even know how to de design drugs until we identify them. That needs to happen. That's how we get go from 100 targeted therapies to 1,000 to 10,000. And everyone says, you know, oncologists, the kind of experts, it's going to be multi-agent uh, regimens now. That won't be chemo, but multi-agent targeted. You have that sciencey world that's needed to find the drug. Yours is today. Yours is okay, that's wonderful, I hope, like, it helps my children, it helps my grandchildren, but today, like, we, we have a long time before we can see those things. Let's, we, we understand it's complicated, let's accept that it's complicated, and let's find ways to say whatever that is when these amazing people are figuring it out, the different constituents that make it a yes or no, treated, treatable, not treatable, right now, let's make sure, let's just take all of those elements and put them together. And that is a really neat thing. And so, the way I understand it is... For now, it does require, like, basically it needs to be suspended in malignant effusions or ascites. So you can have it in the lung, and it can be, it doesn't have to be lung cancer, but if you have an effusion, like, that's on the outside of your lung, but inside of the lining in your chest, and you pull it out, and it has cells in it, cancer cells, you can go send that. And then the same thing with the belly, like, you know, liver cancers cause belly, pancreatic, ovarian, all that stuff that are known to kind of leak into the, into the pool, which is the peritoneum. You can pull that out, and if you have cancer cells, you send it over. And then you keep them alive. You don't put them into formalin or anything that will desiccate them or kill them. You just want them that way, get them to you fast, and then do the science-y, you know, petri dish kind of stuff, which is a very offensive, you know, low way of saying what the technology really is on how you make it happen. Yeah, and, and you're right. We just launched this product. We're a very young company. Um, and the first uh, uh, biopsy that we uh, launched because it was easier for us to do and it happened quicker was indeed to work with these malignant fluids, pleural effusions uh, uh, and, uh, and ascites. Um, and so we are fully CLIA certified and, and can and know how to process those samples well. We're about a month away though from launching tissue samples. 
So at that point, any set of live cells gotten from a needle biopsy, a fine needle aspirate, a core needle biopsy, or a surgical resection, which we don't expect to see a lot of, we'll be able to test all of those samples too. The, the challenge there though is that um, despite the fact we only need about 5,000 live cancer cells to test a drug, that still means we need 100,000 live cancer cells to test a panel of 20 drugs. And a, a fine needle aspirate with a number 22 needle, you, you need a really good interventional radiologist with a really good imaging system to hit the right part of the tumor. Because right. if you go into the, cold, the center of the tumor and the tumor is cold there, there are effectively no live cancer cells. You have to be able to go into the part of the tumor that has live cells in it. And that's why imaging is so important. So they can see exactly which part of the tumor they're going into. So the beauty of the um, malignant fluids is that we always get live cancer cells, you, you know, because people will have a liter of that fluid and we ask for, you know, a few tubes of it and it works virtually every time. For the, uh, for the tissue samples, it's trickier. Um, it works, but it doesn't work every single time. And so we're working with interventional radiologists right now to continue to kind of improve those techniques to make sure that they don't miss, because we'd sure hate to do a biopsy on a patient, send it to us, and we say, sorry, you missed. We don't got any cells to work with. That, that would be really disappointing for everybody. And that's, you bring up an important concept, and the concept is about, like, biopsies and the kinds you get. So I think a lot of people have experienced either with cancer or family members with cancer, the biopsy was non-diagnostic or, or didn't, you know, have the results or we need more information. And you'll say, isn't biopsy, you know, binary? It is or it isn't. You touched on some very important points. When somebody says I'm getting an FNA or a fine needle aspiration, it is a very small needle that you just put in and you kind of suck out. This is minimal tissue to basically guide you on your next step, but it is not enough usually to do genomic sequencing, molecular testing, or any of those things. It's just to tell you sometimes cancer or not, or whatever else. That's a very important concept, and I want everyone to know that if you are, have a lymphoma, and a lymphoma is suspected, and you have lymph nodes, it is a gold standard recommendation to do an excisional biopsy. Now, what an excisional means is to take out the whole lymph node. So that's for blood disorders, especially lymphomas. One step above an FNA or fine needle aspiration is a core biopsy. And that is like a core needle. It's bigger, it's more hollow, it's more substantial, and you get really into the meat of it. That is always more helpful for like a higher chance or a higher yield of being able to diagnose it. But of course, if you're just shooting at a breast cancer, sometimes a core one is painful, it's, you know, and if it turns out to be nothing, you know, so you have to weigh that, but it's something to discuss with your oncologist or interventional radiologist for sure. The second concept that you brought up that's very important is when you said a cold inside the tumor. That is another reason why people can have kind of non-diagnostic biopsies. Cancers that are more aggressive replicate so fast and they need to recruit blood and the oil and gas to keep, you know, to keep running as a car. Some cells die in that process. When it gets big, that dying is called necrotic. And what happens is that that center could just be necrotic, which means it's been there for a while, long enough for the cells in the middle to die, and the live cells are expanding this way. It's like almost the lava in a planet. That's one you know reason. Number two, your imaging, you can t appreciate that on imaging. CT, of course, but even PET scans, if it's hot, it can tell you this area is active. And that's very important as well. And the third reason about the missing things is, and we talked about it in a previous podcast, cancers especially like pancreatic and some kinds of Hodgkin's uh, tumors, they recruit a lot of the parts to build your own buildings, your regular cells, you know, houses, if they're, if regular cells are houses, the bricks, the mortar, you know, the, the wood, they take those and they kind of embed it in themselves. And so you have tumors like pancreatic and like some of the Hodgkin's, the nodular sclerosing is where a lot of it is just architectural stuff, fibrosis and other elements, extracellular matrix, 
that basically are in your normal cells. That's why the excisional is so important. So those are all important points. I say them because I'm probably going to chop them up to just talk about why people have negative biopsies. But in your case, you want live cells. My next question is, okay, I get it. Chemotherapy is cytotoxic. Standard, you know, cytotoxic chemo is like a poison that kind of affects the replication cycle. But what about this world of immune therapy, which what I'm told does not directly poison the cell at all. Like it doesn't attack the cell. It just allows your immune system to attack it. And what about targeted therapies that are oral drugs? Surely you can't like put those oral drugs in these jars and, and see if those of these oral targeted therapies, TKIs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, do they, are they applicable to this, you know, process or concept? Let me start with the TKIs. The answer is yes. Um, we actually have validated in our laboratory 34 of the targeted inhibitors and, and every one of them causes the cancer cells to lose a little bit of their weight oh within 24 gosh. hours of application. If a cancer drug is going to kill a cancer, it's going to change the weight of the cell. It's almost definitional. How do you kill a cancer cell without changing its weight? So. Yeah, all the TKIs work beautifully. But how do you um, get those to drop them in because they're like oral, oral pills and stuff? Oh, we just, we buy the analog molecule from, uh, from a laboratory and we test it in our liquid environment. Um, and we rely on the oncologist to figure out dosage right. to patients. We don't inform anything about that. We're just saying, if you put those active molecules on the surfaces of a cancer cell, they either will or will not respond to those molecules. But let me stress how important that is. When we do renal cell carcinoma or hepatocellular carcinoma, all you get is like this long list of TKIs. You could try serafinib, regorafinib, you could try cabozatinib, you could try lenvatinib. And we're just like, there's no real guidance. There's no precision stuff to say, okay, this one's a better chance or not. That is the hardest thing about aggressive tumors like hepatocellular carcinoma. Renal cells are a little slower. You're telling me I can volitionally choose to just put all of those single agents to help guide my therapies. Like right now it's only toxicities. Oncologists basically, I'm like, I don't know which one's going to work, but I can tell you the toxicities that we don't want. And therefore we go that way. I can put that in and figure that out in how long a day, a week. It's one day to ship us the cells overnight via federal express. One day for us to apply the drug overnight in a set in the dish. And we give your oncologist the report back on day two. It's a, a two day turnaround time. To help guide things where I have no guidance, where it's like pick any one of these things. And we'll run 20 drugs for that you. That is extraordinary. So take, you know, run 20. And then so the immune therapy, what about that point? Because that doesn't go on the surface of the cell. Yeah. So um, it does not. And we right now, uh, we're about to release um, the four major uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So Pembro, Nevo, Atezo, and Dostar. And what we're doing there is from these malignant fluids, when, those, when we get those fluids, we not only get the cancer cells out of those fluids, we get the T cells, all right? Oh. So what we do is we apply the checkpoint inhibitor to the T cells and measure their weight change. Because if the checkpoint inhibitor activates the T cells, they get bigger. So this isn't watching a cell die, this is watching a cell get active. And so we are making those measurements too. Now we have very little clinical validation data so far on, on the checkpoint inhibitors, but we are right now recruiting patients into, into our studies to help us understand, does our measurement accurately predict whether or not, you know, Pembro is gonna work for you. And if it does accurately predict, and this is a better biomarker than the current uh, uh, you know, Pembro right. biomarker, which is pd we're going to be very happy about that because you know there's so many patients now who are going on these drugs because in say, in some cases they are miracle drugs but they have all of these autoimmune uh, downsides to them 
And if we can more accurately select that population of patients that are going to positively respond to the checkpoint inhibitors, that will be a major That is, it's crazy because, you know, if anyone has had immune therapy or, or know about it, it's frustrating. I'm on a group thread with my, some of the fellows I graduated uh, oncology with. And, you know, we say, like, it's just so annoying. Some people have a high expressors of PD-1 or PD-1. And there is a rough, definitely, a correlation, definitely. But you have high expressors that fail and you have low expressors that do well. And it's just, it's frustrating. And again, let me just say it again, you respect that. It's not that you don't respect it, but you're like, like, let's just bypass that for today because until we figure out what these other, you know, factors are and prognostic stuff for response, let's just take what you got. Like, let the science you know, people figure that stuff out over years and let's just see if it'll respond. So if I understood correctly, you're looking at the cell and it gets bigger with immune therapy. And that's an important point. The T cell. The T cell gets bigger. So yeah. you're, are, are you, is there, is there communication with the T cell and the cancer cell when you're looking at that or just the T cell alone? Just the T cell is gotcha. all we're measuring. We've actually purified out the cancer cells. We just want to see that T gotcha. cell response. Now <clears throat> for the antibody, the monoclonal antibodies, that mechanism of action is the, the antibody actually activates the NK cell, right. another killer cell from your immune system, and it kills the cancer cell. We've run that assay too. And we've run it um, using uh, daratubumab, which is an antibody that's used uh, primarily in multiple myeloma. And if, you, if we take, essentially what we have to do is take, take the cancer sample from, from the multiple myeloma patient, that would be from a bone marrow right. aspirate. We have to purify the cancer cells. So we actually take the cancer cells out, you know, kill all the red blood cells, kill everything that is just a, a stromal cell, a non-cancer cell, but keep the NK cells, mix them all back together with the proteins that came, you know, the serum, the proteins that came from the patient, the NKs and the cancer cells, apply the antibody, daratubumab, and then measure the results on the cancer cells. Dara kills cancer cells in four hours. Yeah, <laughs> or it doesn't kill them. It, we see the, the mass response. We see them lose a few percentage of their, of their mass in four hours. So it's a more complicated assay. It's not something that's commercially available. We're still working on it. But we've, we have this wonderful proof of concept funded by NCI, thank you very much, that shows that we can use this weight measurement assay to measure how NK cells are killing cancer cells stimulated by antibodies. That very, is very cool. so nerdily cool, seriously. <laughs> so that's a, such a neat thing with DARA and, and a lot of these other agents because, you know, and DARA is pretty well tolerated, but they definitely have some others in myeloma that are the more antibody related. They have some scary side effect profiles. And just, you know, from a different angle, a side response, the fact that that decision on taking the risks of something where the toxicities or side effects can be particularly bad for your patient, but you only have that agent or a couple left, if that can be fortified or like encouraged because at least you know it'll work, you can avoid potential serious toxicities of drugs that you just have to weigh the risks and benefits, but suddenly the benefits become a lot more like clearer. It's probably gonna work, whereas I'm just treating a patient completely aside truly what their cancer is or who they are just based on data. And that, I mean, that is a powerful downstream ripple effect thing that, you know, will never really come back, you know, to a company or to a product, but, but just quality of life, which is the most important thing and keeping people alive and well and doing no harm, which is the fundamental principle of, you know, of medicine, that's huge. Yeah, and, and another example of that, you've just described guiding, guiding the oncologist to a drug that is likely to work. Guiding the oncologist to a drug that's not likely to work is maybe every bit as important, in particular in multiple myeloma, where the standard therapies are triples and now going to quads. 
Well, if we can run tests and say, yeah, of these triples, this one drug just isn't contributing anything at all, drop it out. You know, go back to the double, which was, is viewed as kind of old technology. Maybe it was just fine. You know, for, for a particular patient, if two drugs does just as much as three, get rid of the third because it's got un toxicity with no, no value, no benefit. So that's another usage of this assay where standard of care is already drug combos. And myeloma is further along the path than most diseases that way, but that's an important No, it's true. I mean, if they can tolerate triple therapy, the recommendation is you just give it because now say you can consider if for some reason they can't just doing one plus steroid or the other one plus steroid, but really you want all three and it's like, well, if I can achieve it with two, why would I do all three? You know, I face that all the time. Yeah. So that's that's just that's extraordinary. This is really exciting stuff. And you want me to do you want to do two minutes on the physics of this in case you want to use it? I as do. A cut? But one I want to share one story where this is like I still think of this, you know, patient and she we just had a special relationship. She was very left brain, she was an engineer. And, you know, she was a small cell lung cancer. And usually people with small cell respond well to first-line therapy. I mean, it's one of the few cancers where, really, if not the only one, where the NCCN recommends if they have a functional status of three, meaning they spend over half their waking hours in bed or laying down or sitting down, and it's because of how advanced they are in their cancer, they said treat. They still recommend treating in small cell. Why? Because it has a good response rate. I mean, upward to 60, 80%, and it's very aggressive if you don't treat. And there's not many cancers that they say that. They say DCOG3 consider, you know, palliative measures. In her case, she had like a, a decent but underwhelming response after two cycles, which puts her immediately in a minor category, right? That's not most people. And then by the fourth cycle, the two more, she had frankly progressed. It's as, as if like it didn't touch her for the remaining two, even though it somewhat temporized the first two. In small cell, it gets very difficult because when they get past the heavy hitter drugs that have that high success rate, you're doing single agent, multiple drug after drug. I burned through the next three or four chemos, each time dejected, walking into that room saying, I'm sorry, it didn't, it, like, it, it didn't do it. It didn't do it. And she's hopeful. And she always just took it. She's an engineer part, probably in part to that. But she, she just was like, well, that was the that right next line. Now it's the next one. But we're faced with these problems, and especially even non-small cell after after triple therapy of single agent stuff or breast cancer, where you just you you just line them up and you take a sh a shot, and it's awful because like if it doesn't work, they're progressing and they have the toxicity. And this really would have helped me navigate that. I I have to share the story where that patient that did have small cell again, very you know kind of didn't say much, wasn't very animated, but she would just ask me, so you're saying I can still get green bananas? when I would tell her about the hope in the future. And I said, what does that mean the first time? And she said that I can get green bananas, that I'll have enough life to live to be able to see them ripen and eating them, that I'm not wasting my money. And then when I had that last conversation with her and she'd progressed now in fourth or fifth line, tough as nails, even though she was 100 pounds, you know, we both, ugh, it gives me goosebumps, but she was like, so like no more green bananas. And I was like, no more green bananas. And I just, it, it stays with me ever since then. And she actually progressed on everything, but the thought that these patients can just see success much sooner and I didn't get to that sixth line, you know, is, is something very powerful. I have to ask, I was a physics teacher for the MCAT for the Princeton Review uh, as a side gig in, in med school uh, and college. What is the physics exactly about calculating this mass change that basically can literally revolutionize or change the way we think about seeing responses and what to do next? Well, I'll do my, my two-minute hand-waving version of the physics. And I was, I'm a physics major myself, actually, as an undergraduate. What the, uh, was invented uh, by the Manalis Lab at MIT was a MEMS device. So a MEMS device is a microelectrical mechanical device made in a semiconductor fab. And it's a tiny little chip that's smaller than a penny. 
Um, and inside that MEMS device, which is a fluidics device also, in the physics world, it's called an oscillating cantilever. In the real world, that's called a diving board, okay? So it's a diving board that, di that, that oscillates up and down. And inside that diving board, that tiny little diving board, is a fluidics channel, 30 microns, about the size of a cell, that runs all the way down the diving board and then back up the diving board. And we use a, a beautiful piece of well-known physics, and that is the natural resonant frequency of an oscillating cantilever is directly proportional to its mass. Wow. So when you flow a single cell down this little oscillating cantilever, it changes its frequency. And frequency measurement is one Sensitive. of the most accurate measurements it in all is. of physics. We can measure 10 parts in a billion, which gives us directly the, ex the exact mass measurement of that cell at an extraordinary accuracy. We can measure about 500 cells a minute. We can pump them down this oscillating cantilever really, really fast and get these extraordinarily accurate measurements. So if we need to measure the response of a cancer drug to a, cancer, to a set of cancer cells, and we need 5,000 cells, 10 minutes. You know, you need to do it over, over 20 drugs, 200 minutes. So that's why this whole thing is so fast. The big part of the, the, the reason it's so long, it's not a, not a few hour test, is that we have to incubate the, the drug overnight uh, with, with the cells. So an overnight incubation, a few hours of measurement, you've got a panel of 20 drugs sent back to you. That is extraordinary. And you know, it, the frequencies point is a big one. I can appreciate that as a physics person myself. It's like there, that is, there is no more accurate. I mean, it's just extraordinary because obviously frequencies is how we exist on, on a on an electron to proton level and everything. It is literally a constituent of how the world works. One example I want to uh, leave with is a patient of mine that is EGFR positive, right? So it's very important. I always try to do teaching points in these podcasts that you never let a, a non-small cell lung cancer or a lung cancer in a non-smoker, you never let them go if you can to hospice without at least checking to see if they have targetable mutations. And what that means is my wife had a 92-year-old they didn't want to biopsy because they're like, could I cause injury? That's reasonable. We checked the blood for mutations. She's a non-smoker. She had EGFR positive, which is extraordinary, like 85% sensitive to an oral pill that is not chemo. And she is, and she had brain mats, bone mats, everything. Literally, obviously, and as expected, no disease detectable, and she's traveling the world. And she's 92. And so my, you know, my patient, it was uh, 79 or 80 at the time. He had lost 30 pounds. I'm on fifth-line chemo with him. Fourth-line, forgive me, after doing the EGFR-targeted therapy. And I just started him thanks to x cures they found me a study trial where it shows that i can do again an egfr uh, inhibitor but i can pick something to block the escape mechanism that's theorized to let them outsmart it i could have sent that to you started those two drugs the you know the two targeted drugs assuming it's in those 20 and already know instead of like this thing today I saw him, I was like, he's a weekend. And I'm like, I really hope and pray, like, let's hope that this works. Let's hope that this is why we found extras and, and these things and it'll keep you alive and well, because he looks good. He's 83 now. That thought that I would know that, plus the other option I was looking at, which is some random drug I've never heard of, to be able to determine that instead of waiting four to six weeks is insane. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing to think about are these targeted inhibitors. And you know, when you have the mutation and you have the matching drug, the response rates are really good. The interesting thing about targeted inhibitors is they, are, they have what's called off-target effects, right? Now and then, a targeted inhibitor works for a patient who doesn't have the mutation. It's oh, a yeah, very yeah, strange yeah. thing. It's like, why is it? But it happens quite a bit. Now, we don't often give a targeted inhibitor to a patient who doesn't have the mutation, so we don't have to get a lot of data on this. But if you do a lot of experiments in laboratories where we take cancer cells that we know don't have a mutation, try inhibitors against them in the lab, and it's like, you know, three or four percent of the time they work. 
Now, 3 or 4% is not nearly good enough for an oncologist to prescribe the drug. But if you can run 20 drugs in the back office, and you just take 20 targeted inhibitors, take a patient for whom you have no clue what to do next, run 20 targeted inhibitors. If each one of them has a 3 or 4% chance of, of working, the probability of one of them working is 75%. And then you say, well, we don't quite know what pathway it's going to hit. But, you know, there's a lot of things about cancer yeah. pathways we don't know. And, you know, if this happens to work for you and it's a drug, as you were describing, like, uh, uh, you know, ozomertinib for non-small cell lung cancer, that's a pill with like no side effects and it happens to work in the lab. Oh, my goodness. You know, then you get to fight the CMS battle. Can you get anybody to pay for it? Let's fight that battle later. Let's first find if we can come up with a drug that we can show it works, even if we don't know why it's working. If we can show it works, that's a new option that, that patient otherwise wouldn't have had. And that's 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 where we. And I mean, it can help science because then you can figure out okay, what were the properties in this tumor and in this patient that somehow made this Absolutely. possible? Because it clearly works. It's a clue. It's like I hate to you know be irreverent about it, but or disrespectful about cancer itself and how ugly it is. But it is a clue to say, aha, we need to look down this pathway further. We would have never thought to. Let me reiterate that point. There are drugs that we use every day that we believe is like, you know, a square, a hole and you put or a triangle hole and you put the triangle piece in. That's how, that's how we do these. A lot of our targeted therapies just say you have it. We put it in and it works. There is. And I'm making this clear. There are those same drugs we're familiar with that three to four percent of the time without that still have efficacy on reducing the tumor and controlling the tumor. This is so important because even though numbers are numbers, and unfortunately the reality is in medicine, we just, it is a numbers, you know, I will never say game, but it is. You do the statistics and percentages and you figure it out. If you have someone, a loved one, and this happens not the majority of the time, but it's probably the most frustrating thing as an oncologist. If you have someone that is actually, has a good performance status, zero or one, they actually don't look that sick, they're doing well, but you have no more treatment options. It's a rare tumor, or they've seen the three or four, and there's nothing else. You can't do a trial. The fact that there is a chance, and we know there's a three or four percent chance just with one, that we can take that sample, and I think uh, if I read online correctly, it's like 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks, and actually see on not crazy drugs that are just science that we don't know about, drugs we use every day, have that serendipitous or idiosyncratic like effect that that could actually keep somebody alive. That's insane. And help science. We have a panel of drugs, in fact, of 20 drugs, that are the 20 targeted inhibitors that have the least side effect. And in the literature, there are hints already that these drugs work yeah. off target. You know, there's some reason to believe they're off target. So we've just put together a list of 20 and say, when you're at a loss, you're done with the NCCN guidelines, there's no more chemo you're going to go for, try these 20. And you're right, right now it's $500. Um, it could be a real game changer for some patients. Now, a lot, you're going to try the 20, you're going to get zero hits. You know, we feel, you know, terrible about that. But, but it's the peace of mind. Um, like it's, the, it's the mental health. Yeah, like, like, it's hard for patients to say, is there something else? There's nothing and really believe just one individual that you're in a room with. You want to get a second opinion at every place in the country. You want to like, yeah. and so the, there's things like X-Cures that queries everything for you. Every trial that's out there that's in any way specific to your tumor with, a, with a, something they're under investigation for or a targeted marker. That's why I love extras. It's free and it can give people the peace of mind that I know there's nothing else because I've queried every center and every trial. And then there's what you have, which is even if it's not something we know about, that, that you don't have that, you know, that link up. And I appreciated that when I spoke at a conference in New Orleans on colorectal cancer, 
I thought, oh, colorectal cancer, easy. There's all these targets we identified that don't work. And then we're realizing there's targets that we use that aren't even positive and they work. And now what you're saying is what you're offering is that's a whole nother element. That's on top of there's no trials or anything on what we do know. Let's be humble in medicine. Let's be humble in oncology. We have been humbled because we know it happens that we don't understand it perfectly, but that drugs work for some reason. Let me let you know that too. So you're getting two pieces, every trial without leaving your home, and you're also getting, like for your own specific tumor with precision medicine outside of the academic world, but in a clinical, relevant you world, is there something that could serendipitously work? And it's for 500 bucks, you said. That, that's right. And, you know, right, if you look across all the cancers, there are about 270 FDA-approved anti-cancer therapies. And I'll tell you, in the long run, I, w I want to not be running 20 drugs per patient, I want to run 270. Wouldn't that be great just to say, oh, I have cancer. I want to try all the drugs. And, and that inventory of drugs represents just since 1950, it represents about a trillion and a half dollars of drug development money being spent. It's this, I mean, it's a national asset of epic proportion and we don't know how to use it. You know, we don't know which drugs are going to work for which for patient. Let's take that trillion and a half dollar asset. We paid for, we all paid for it. All we're doing is optimizing the use of that asset. And, and if you could really get 270 drugs tested against your cancer, your chances of finding good stuff is going to go up substantially. I got to say, this, you know, to. this makes me think I'm, I'm on a, the, for the White House, there's a uh, healthcare leaders and social media roundtable, and I'm kind of like the arm for cancer and access and equity. But Cancer Moonshot in general, that the roundtable doesn't have to do with Cancer Moonshot, but Cancer Moonshot has a goal that kind of, you know, Biden resurfaced from the Obama administration and says, I want people to live you know, X, I forgot what the metric is, X amount longer with a cancer diagnosis or die less. You, my friend, may have made that administration very happy or, you, you know, what you guys are offering for people because that's how people live longer. You don't progress for the six weeks for drugs that won't work for eight weeks, whatever duration your oncologist gave you. And instead, like you just greatly increase the chances of effective drugs working as opposed to failures, which we know are more often than not when you get past second line. If you just had a much more consolidated deck, that that's the kind of thing that make the metric. Because I think he said 50% less deaths, you know, by 2020, 35, whatever that was. I was like, that's going to be hard to achieve. Then I learned th about things like this. And I'm like, that's how you do it. You don't do it like with finding a silver bullet drug for a certain tumor type. You don't find like that. You find it, say, do all of those things, but let's find it in ways that just go back to precision medicine, which is the whole point of this podcast, right? Target cancer, like precision. That is how the world works. You look at that person's cancer, that person will live longer if this thing is accurate. And I read for solid tumors, not many patients, but it's like 92%, it's in the 90s for solid tumors, uh, accuracy, like that it, that you were correct. I think it was like 11 out of 12 that it was actually correct. And, and I will point out it was 11 out of 12. We don't have much data yet, and we've been trying to be very careful about overstating our claim. We have a small amount of data. We've run 46 patients through this whole process of drug prediction and then patient outcome, and we're over 80% predictive on both positive and negative, which is which is great, but it's only 46 patients. So we're partnering with patients and with oncologists right now just to generate the data, to give us all the confidence that this thing really is the kind of long-term solution that Cliff, we hope it is. It has been very humbling to speak with you you have this, you know, this composed demeanor, this like whatever, and I'm like a kid in a candy shop, just so giddy and just wondering like, how are you just not like, you know, just, you know, but it's just a testament to like your humility, humility based on your experiences. If you read any book of inspiring or how to grow in life, it's like learn from the past, like even the things you get excited about, you like, you want to, you know, be confident, but not overzealous. You're all of those things. 
And but I be getting to be that overzealous little kid in the candy shops and the colleges am extremely excited about, you know, not just this, like exactly what you you guys have you all have in, in mass, but just in that concept of thinking entirely. Because I have not heard something where somebody says, Let's just take your blood, your inherited stuff, your germline stuff, plus your cancer stuff, which is also called somatic. Let everyone else figure it out, but let's just figure it out for you. And then and I really think in the long run that's gonna help science because then we can discover you know, that's what science is. It's observation. I observed this. Newton saw an apple fall on his head or felt it and said, I observed something. I wonder if this is a thing. I wonder if this falls at the same, you know, speed. And that's what science is. And that's what this is. Like, it's humbling. And that's just a really cool thing. So, um, Travera, T-R-A-V-E-A-R-A is something, is, is the name. And it's something that right now obviously can't be like directly, you know, ordered by a patient. But of course, Everyone should feel comfortable going to their oncologist. I make sure every one of my patients, I want them to tell me everything. I want them to get a second opinion if they have an inkling to want to do so. should want the best for your patient. Your oncologist should not be offended. And if it's something that you want to do or pursue or you're in that position and you're told there's nothing else, it sounds like, you know, until insurance approves it, which if this pans out, I can't imagine they wouldn't because they're going to save a ton of dollars. And unfortunately or fortunately, it is all about dollars in any industry, including healthcare. But if it saves people money, saves people expensive drugs, it will be approved. But until then, you're offering it for 500 bucks, and that's insane. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. We're always, always fun. And uh, looking Likewise. forward to doing this again sometime.